0: Let's just get right down to business. Joe show. This, this is the Joe Roberts Show. Joe Roberts Show.
1: The Joe Roberts show. Robert show. On today's show, we have the CEO of Angelspan, Joe Mellum. We're going to discuss Angelspan, investing in startups as an angel, risks, and things to look for when investing, and how your investments in tech may qualify to be tax-free. Joe. Thanks for coming on today. Why don't you start by giving us some background about yourself?
0: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, my my formal background is I was a a registered investment advisor and money manager in the public markets. I joined a, um, you'd call it in modern language, a multifamily office uh, in 1990 that was owned by the bank in Liechtenstein um, out there in in the middle of Middle Park. And when my predecessor who sold his firm, the bank died of cancer, I took it over in 93 and, and managed it until I moved to Austin just a few years ago. But in that period of time just got a lot of early exposure to the angel and venture world given who our client base was and the like and have been interested in trying to bring some rigors to the how we fund entrepreneurial capitalism. So what prompted the start of yeah. Angel Span? Well Angel Span is actually the second time I've tried to solve this problem. The first one was a predecessor company called Angel Legacy back in 2000. And it really was from my firsthand experience both managing money for wealthy folks in the public markets and, and managing it with a great deal of professional standards and rigor, you know, risk management portfolio architecture, tax optimization for our taxable clients. And then as I got exposure to the early um, activity since when the internet commercialized uh, and the angel groups and, and the we had a lot of VCs as clients. And so I sort of had a front row seat to the venture modern era of the angel and venture world. And I saw, I just saw back in the mid-90s how there was the absence of the very basic tools and tactics that I used to manage money in the public markets. There was just a complete absence of those disciplines and processes and tools. So I started angel legacy in 2000 to bring those sorts of public market rigor to the private markets, with the end game being twofold. One is that, one, entrepreneurs have a, an easier path to funding. I mean, if you're outside of Silicon Valley, Boston, or New York, and maybe LA now, where over 80% of the venture activity takes place, it's brain damage raising money, even here in Austin, where I'm located. I mean, it's it's a path that is unbelievably silly for entrepreneurs. You know, there's a gentleman here in Austin named uh, Red Hurt that's had multiple successes in the startup plan, including an IPO. In his latest company, Data.World, he raised money outside of Austin because he even he understood. He had to go to the coasts for serious money. And, and that's what I've observed is that there is an absence of serious money because there's an absence of serious processes in how money is invested in startups. And the process of entrepreneurs chasing money from angel groups or people that are largely new to investing, much less venture investing, just because you got a bunch of money because you worked at Rackspace or Google or Facebook doesn't mean you actually know how to invest in startups or, God forbid, even run a venture fund. Yet that's the profile of a whole lot of who entrepreneurs have to pitch for money. So I've seen the process from both sides be, let's just say, I'll be generous and say it's suboptimal, lacking in real professional processes. And so Angel Legacy was the first attempt back in 2000. It didn't work. It was too soon. Um, it was overly sophisticated. I sort Like a lot of first-time entrepreneurs, and, that, and for me in that case, I built something for me, and there was no market for it. And then 9-11 also put a sort of dagger in the heart of it. I mean, I hired a CEO to run it, raised a bunch of money, got to revenue, had partnerships with with VC firms and the like. People liked it. It was just, there was no market for it. Like I said, I largely built something for me. So I had to shut it no three. Fast forward, moved to Austin almost eight years ago and was encouraged to restart that old company. And so it's now Angel Span, the legacy funds division. But large, same goal, slightly different tactics. But the end game is still the same. Bring the professional tools, tactics, and and behavior into the private asset class so more serious money can get mobilized into the venture asset class, resulting in more efficient access to capital also for startups, regardless of your location.
1: We think in today's marketplace that there would be sufficient amount of capital in Austin. You know, where's kind of the disconnect?
0: Well, it comes comes down to experience. I mean, literally, I moved here in uh, 2013. And right then, Austin Ventures, which was the 600-pound gorilla of the venture world here in Austin. Um, was had a terrible reputation and yet it was the dominant player in town and everybody's from outside of Austin would say Austin Ventures isn't in it. well I'm not interested even though they as an organization were falling apart and that became formalized in you know, 2015 a lot of the people that left Austin Ventures to form funds around town were the folks that weren't that good at Austin Ventures they really weren't invited to be a partner on a the next fund and so they left Austin Ventures and formed new venture funds around town and Again, those are sort of the Austin Ventures rejects from a um, personal profile standpoint. And yet, because Austin had so little money to support startups back then, you then had all these funds that were launched and populated by people that, let's just say, were the B and C players from Austin Ventures, as Austin Ventures itself was coming apart. And so this is just the, the dynamics that are unique to Austin. But as I've traveled around to Atlanta, Chicago, some of these other, call them second tier cities in the, in the world of venture capital. And there's the, the playbook is generally the same as those ecosystems are maturing. They're going through a sort of a natural life cycle. And it's what I saw Silicon Valley 30 years ago right? when I went there on Sand Hill Road in 1990. The venture world was not that glamorous. All the all the hotshot B-School students were going off to consulting or corporate uh, or investment banking, but they weren't going into uh, venture capital. And then when the internet commercialized, the DNA of venture world changed, and the behaviors changed. It became much more of a momentum business than a real investing business. And I'm talking about in generalities. There's good VC firms, quality firms, but they've gone so late stage that because they're basically mezzanine equity, that's not even they're not even taking any operational risks. They're so late stage, um, and they have to write such big checks. But largely, the activity in the earlier stages are populated by by people that literally are jumping into it to fill the void, but really don't know what they're doing. I mean, then. There are no professional standards, no training, no body of knowledge, no certification, no continuing education. There is no standard body of knowledge that anybody has to study. They can be certified GP for a venture fund. Anybody can hang it. I think it's the last financial services industry where there is zero professional standards applied to the principles. Think about that. They're managing somebody else's money in that venture fund, yet as the GP of a venture fund, you don't have to know what you're talking about. You just have to be able to raise a fund.
1: You think because of the uh, time it takes to actually have uh, more of a performance or track record being, you know, like at least like a five to 10 year period that I guess with the excess of the like in the news with Uber, you know, Facebook and all these large companies that it gives off this impression that anybody that starts a venture fund and investing in tech is going to hit the same type of returns. And then therefore that's kind of presented to the LPs like, Hey, look, this is kind of what you could do, you know, what we could do if we get in the right deals. And that's kind of why there's all these new emerging uh, venture
0: funds these days. Well, look at when we see what's going on with meme stocks, you know, I saw it 30 years ago when E-Trade went public, and I, I actually knew the Bill Porter, the founder of E-Trade, and uh, I saw E-Trade grow up. And then when it, it got very busy in the internet, online trading, it was the same thing as Robin Hood today, just a different group of, of traders. I've seen this behavior time and again. There's no shortage of people that will write checks based on greed, on FOMO, on um, a whole myriad of things that are largely motivated by what I call the limbic brain or limbic hijacking, sort of that. The, you know, the, the, the emotional reaction. And that includes people that will invest in a first time GP of, an, of a new venture fund in a community that's a good salesperson that could spin a good story. And that's who I, I see this time and time again, people writing checks into these venture funds that they themselves are largely gambling with that check. You know, one of the gentlemen that's on my board of directors, he runs the venture fund of funds practice for a, a very large institutional consulting firm called GC and Grosvenor out of Chicago. And he, <laughs> he he will tell you, as he's told me numerous times, when they get a five billion dollar mandate to build a venture fund of funds for a sovereign wealth fund, for example, or CalPERS or Texas teachers, all clients of their firm that he actually controls that their venture activity. He says, you know, he has to hold his nose to, to invest about 80% of that money. About 20% of that money can be spent on legit quality venture firms that have robust infrastructure, disciplined processes, transparency to those processes, quality track records that are properly calculated. I mean, again, just basic rigor to justify somebody giving them money. Right? They are worthy venture firms. What about 8% of it? He says he has to hold his nose and pray that it's the Least bad solutions that he could find out there.
1: That's just because of the mandate to deploy that certain amount of capital, correct?
0: In a fund of funds and three funds, three good funds doesn't make a fund of funds, and you couldn't deploy five billion in three funds. You wouldn't get an allocation large enough, and so you know it's it's literally very very difficult for him to do his job to spend money in this asset class and do it well. And that's the point. That is exactly the point. Um, that is simply the the fact that when you apply institutionally rigorous standards, fiduciary driven processes, which is he's a fiduciary, just like I was a fiduciary in the public market. When you apply fiduciary behavior and standards to the venture asset class, then the available pool of reasonable venture funds just collapses. You have to basically be taking unknowable risks when you're investing in the venture asset class as the venture industry is populated by so many of these first-time managers that are throwing shit against the wall and hoping something sticks. Not saying they're stupid or ill-intended or greedy or bad people. I'm just saying they literally just don't know what they're doing. They think that their thesis, and then I have conversations with these sort of GPs and say, what are you doing about your managing non-systematic risk? They don't know what that means. That's one of the most fundamental things you do in in managing somebody else's money is managing non-systematic risk, which is, by the way, just called diversification, (laughs) (laughs) not brain surgery, but they're not trained in it. And that's my point. I said, what are you doing about managing systematic risk? Well, that's your thesis risk, market risk, or timing risk. That's only done through staged capital deployment. Think dollar cost average. Common practice in public investing, but it's not even part of the c- curriculum or conversation venture asset class. It's starting to. There's a lot of good academic work now that's been done, but it's coming from academia. It's not coming from the NVCA or the venture industry itself. It's literally coming from academia. Saying, no, this is actually how you should do this in the venture asset class, which, by the way, are standard practices in public market investing. So what, what does product diversification look like? So why don't we discuss
1: you know, some <laughs> of the risks? And the difference between venture investing and traditional investing.
0: And discuss those risks?
1: Yeah, well, yeah. hit on like the different risks that uh, are different in a venture versus traditional.
0: Well, they're not. Um, the, the, the magnitude of the implications of the risks are different. And that actually makes it very interesting. Um, the unique character trait of venture investing versus public market investing is the asymmetric returns in the venture asset class. You can only lose all your money, 100%. Right? You invest in a startup, you can only lose all your money. Now, if you optimize on taxes, some of the QSBS conversation, you actually can cap your downside to on the after-tax basis, $0.60 cents on the dollar through QSBS section 1244. So you can actually even minimize your downside risk. So let's use that math because we're talking about taxable investors. $0.60 cents on the dollar, you can lose, but you can make 1,000x, right? The asymmetry is on the upside. Well, just the sheer portfolio construction and sheer statistics would tell you that you need to maximize your opportunity to capture that asymmetry on the upside and manage the risk of loss on the downside. Um, And that is again, diversification. Now, if you talk to somebody in the venture world today, they'll say, well, 30 companies is is enough for diversification. Well, that's actually the academic math for a diversified public securities portfolio. The academic work that shows optimal diversification at each funding round, it's not just one round because each seed round, A round, B round has different risk profiles, mainly operational risk which is systematic risk or timing risk. So diversification levels vary with the round of the fund itself. So optimal diversification for a seed is 100 to 200 companies, all getting the same dollar amount. That's an ideally architected seed stage fund when you actually are trying to manage risk optimally. Now, every conversation I have with somebody about, well, you can't do that. It's just too difficult because, okay, you're now choosing to take more risk with your investor's money than is optimal. Are you communicating that properly? And of course, that makes them all, their head explode because they didn't even think in those terms. And so this is my point about process is that for seed stage, A round, B round, there's different levels of of non-systematic risk management through diversification. But the number one risk you need to manage is timing risk. Research has shown timing is the number one determining factor of success or failure. Things that could be you didn't plan on that could happen inside the company or outside the company, like a pandemic, for example, or 9-11 or or, or, or a CEO that gets caught up in a me too issue or whatever, right? There are systematic risks that happen that only are managed, timing risks that are only managed through staged capital deployment because that's a recognition. You're never going to get any one timing decision right. You can't predict the future. Thinking you can time things means you think you can predict the future. And the venture asset class where you can't reverse your decision, i.e. sell like the public markets, this staged capital deployment is even more important. And that's how you manage what's called systematic risk or market risk or timing risk or thesis risk. It's all the same. And that's done through staged capital deployment. And there's optimization on how to do that, largely uh, modeled in the poker world. It's called the Kelly Criterion. It's, it's a statistical optimization of how to deploy capital over multiple stage periods to optimize the total dollar-weighted and time-weighted rates of return over all the capital deployed, right? That's an optimization model. Well, again, it's, it's, it's optimi- optimization is hard to manage to, but it certainly is a, is a goal to manage to. Well, just even having these conversations with most GP, they just it goes over their heads. And that's, that is my point is that they literally have not done their homework. They don't understand, they don't have a portfolio strategy, a risk management strategy. Well, I, they all claim to know they've got access to quality deal flow, which that statement itself is an incorrect statement because nobody knows quality till after the fact.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah
0: that's true, right? That's so nobody true. Nobody knows quality <laughs> till after the fact. And, and, and claiming you know quality <laughs> ahead of time is just spewing forth the blather of the venture pitch fest industrial complex because that's just nonsense. That's, that's intellectually bankrupt. So now it's spin. And now all of a sudden you're, again, that's not an institutionally rigorous way to frame how you're investing somebody else's money because you have the ability to predict the future with great regularity. That's what that means. You unpack the intellectual journey of that statement.
1: So for all the, for the listeners that would like to um, you know, be an investor themselves, they would like to be involved in venture space. They obviously know they could go down an angel route to get started, or they can invest in a fund. Can right. we kind of maybe let's distinguish maybe the pros and cons of each and maybe how one can make a decision in which direction they should go? Because you also mentioned having a diversification of basket of investments, whether that's 30, 100 or 200, and that kind of could seem right. omer- overwhelming to the individual that has to not only source these, but, you know, build confidence and have the capital to get involved. So maybe we'll start on, you know, uh, the benefits of going into a fund structure first, uh, doing all the work yourself as an angel.
0: Clearly, it's going to matter which fund. You know, again, which is we talked about the difficulty of finding a quality fund.
1: So how about some How about some maybe key underwriting things that uh, an LP might look at in a fund to determine best suit, right? I'm not saying people, I mean, I was an active angel investor.
0: That's how I learned a lot of the ins and outs of it myself. It's fun. There's no doubt about it. It's exciting. It's fun to put some chips down and try and predict the future, right? But what's, what's important is to view it properly as, as largely gambling. It's still largely gambling now. It just is because the risk and rewards are very much aligned with gambling, otherwise you wouldn't have the asymmetric returns just like you do if you pick the right number on a roulette wheel. It's 35 to one for Christ's sakes. That's fabulous odds, right, if you hit it right. Same thing in venture, it's a lot like roulette. Now, if you think in roulette, if you mitigate your upside by betting in multiple numbers or have a strategy around it where you're betting just the center column numbers, right, you can actually diversify your bets on a roulette wheel And improve your probability of having success. But when you have success, it just doesn't have the huge upside as picking or put it all in one number and getting lucky. So at its core, it really comes down to make sure that you're writing those checks fully informed and not fooling yourself on really what you're doing. Because putting all your money in two or three numbers on a roulette wheel is not investing. It's gambling. It's the same thing with angel investing. Now you can improve your odds. Think of going from the roulette wheel to the craps table, because craps apparently is where the odds are best. You can improve your odds if you're going to write the write the checks yourself. And that is one first and foremost. And this comes really out of the world of behavioral finance. And this is the last risk. This is a bit more this this is a relatively new body of academic work and even acknowledgement, but it's, it's in the world of behavioral finance and behavioral economics. And the, and the sort of the patron saint is Daniel Kahneman, who's a Nobel Prize winner on this subject. He's, a, he's the architect behind the work, behind the money ball phenomenon, if you know that whole money ball thing in baseball. That's his, his work. And this is about managing your decision process risk, what not to do, right? how to avoid making bad decisions. And that's a really important construct. It's a mental discipline to think, minimize downside versus optimize upside. Because minimize downside also takes you into your critical thinking part of your brain what Danny Kahneman calls system two thinking. System one thinking is swinging for the fence because, oh my God, this is the greatest thing in sliced bread. I'm in, great idea, I'm in. That is limbic brain decision-making and that's where all the mistakes happen, okay? So you ask what are the toolkits people should deploy? The first thing is work really hard at your frame of mind. A, this is gambling, but B, I'm gonna minimize my losses. And one way to minimize your loss is to think in terms of, okay, identify the flaws in it. Don't get excited about the upside, right? now. If you unpack some of the things an investor can do, one is optimize on these tax laws you and I were touching on. The QSBS laws, Qualified Small Business Stock Law, tax laws, or tax incentives have been around for a very long time. And if you're an early stage investor, a seed investor, then section 1244 is the tax law that allows you to minimize your downside loss on an after-tax basis. Now, people don't like to think in terms of tax laws and minimizing losses and preparing for downside. That takes all the fun out of angel investing, for crying out loud. Gets you out of your Olympic brain which is where all that dopamine (laughs)
1: happens.
0: Um, But that is the right way to do it. Now, again, if you choose to do it still the old way, just make sure you understand you're just gambling. And that's okay. Look at Vegas and Macau do pretty well by facilitating gambling. Just know what you're doing. That's all. Now, in a fund model, that's a whole different conversation. I would want to ask the fund manager themselves, what's your risk management strategies? That's it. And it better be something more than, well, we've got a great network and we've got access to quality deal flow. And, and, you we, tip- and we co-invest with others. We don't lead, we co-invest. And we diversify. We actually get up to 30 positions in our venture fund. Well, that just means they're literally just parroting the conventional line. And that's completely an ill-informed strategy. They're just parroting what everybody else says. And that tells me they are they don't know what they're
1: doing. So when, when you have the discussion around risk management, is that something that you're looking for? Full document internal documentation that they have and how it's implemented uh, maybe per the member on the team?
0: You know, it, it's it's always how they react to it is the right answer. Okay. It, specific expectations and requirements and sort of a menu and, and, and checkbox. You really only are going to apply that if you're taking, you know, again, allocating a half a billion or a billion dollars to a, a bigger fund, right? Where you're a, you're a consultant, like my board member. It's their job to actually tick all those boxes. If I'm an individual investor interviewing with a VC fund, one is you're going to write, not going to write a big enough check. They have them jump through all those hoops for you. Um, they will, kick and scream and, and you know it's like pulling teeth because that's not, they wanna sell the sizzle. They don't want you to look behind the curtain and realize how little back office infrastructure, how poor most of their back office is. And I I know this from ex- talking to a lot of insiders at very prominent venture firms. Most of these venture funds, aside from the top tier, have very poor back office infrastructure themselves. They wouldn't withstand their own due diligence. <laughs> what they put a startup through to get into investment, they wouldn't oftentimes survive it themselves, which to me is another sign that they really aren't proper professionals in investing other people's money. Now understand, I, I, I wanted to make, make it clear that I have a pretty high bar. Again, I'm, I'm having managed money, had the SEC go through our, our all of our files every five years. I've had consultants go through and look at all of our due diligence, all of our backed office. I've been through these rigorous due diligence challenges. So I know what, I know what the expectations are. And that's the, the expectations I have of the venture industry. Now we're never gonna get there. But by God, it's directionally a much better place to be so that more money can be invested better in more startups. That's really the end game still. And if we're not going to improve the process, then we're going to keep floundering the way we are and have just a returns dominated by a few firms. Everybody else, you know, if you look at the venture asset class, it's a poor returning asset class relative to benchmarks, risk adjusted benchmarks, and all those sorts of things. We're going to continue down this path. And thankfully, there's been a lot of analysis and reports that have come out showing the innovation that's both necessary but happening in how in this venture funding process. There is innovation coming. I'm happy to share with you, or uh, you could share with your listeners, uh, what I think is the best report that was done or analysis of the venture industry, and it's called The Future of Venture Capital. And it was done by Clayton Christensen's consulting firm. Clayton is the father of that phrase, disruptive innovation. And while he passed away, I think 2019, maybe, he's had a consulting firm. You know, He taught business at Harvard Business School, famous fellow. And, and His consulting firm was engaged to do an analysis of the venture industry, and they did a wonderful job, and the report is terrific. It came out late last year. It's called The Future of Venture Capital. They talk about the necessity for innovation and where that innovation is coming, and it's it's exactly the areas we're talking about. So it is happening, thankfully.
1: What do you feel as an angel or even on the side of a venture fund, but when you're doing due diligence on a, you know, a startup on their seed round, you know, what is the proper amount of due diligence versus under or over? Because really it's just a startup and and there's very limited data and you could sometimes maybe overanalyze it and maybe not, and, and maybe not look so much as at the founders or the people that are driving the, you know, the company forward. So can you comment on that?
0: It's a great question, and your comments are spot on because it's too early to think that even what they're going to tell you is going to be reflective of what the future may hold. So you really are just betting, placing a a real risky bet. Let's put it that way. It's like putting money on a number, right? Twenty three on a roulette wheel. Now there is a way, and again, this is uh, there's there's two philosophies that I think are really important to and would improve investors' success and and return on on effort as well as return on investment. Because your point about you know overanalyzing also doesn't serve you well, and that's been verified by both Danny Kahneman. If he did a presentation to the um, uh, the CFA Institute's global annual meeting, and it was back in 2018, and I've got it, i again I'm happy to share it with you you to share to your listeners. But he talked about what's the optimal decision making process. Now this is ubiquitous to public markets or private markets. There's optimal processes regardless of what you're or real estate or crypto or anything. If you're making a decision and a series of of decisions. The optimal process is to, A, as he points out, algorithms be human bias all day long, mm. right? So what should you use? A, data, not feel, get out of your limbic brain, <laughs> but also simple algorithms be complex ones. To your point about overanalyzing. In fact, here's a Nobel laureate that's telling you don't overanalyze. And that was very well captured, I think, in a more glamorous way in my, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink. It's exactly what he studied. And that book blank is what's the optimal decision process? And not only is it literally four data points, a simple algorithm, as Kahneman spoke to, but also a limited time constraint—the blink of an eye. So as long as the right information is in the hands of the decision, an experienced decision maker, and that's a really important point in the book blank is that you have to have the right data in the hands of somebody with experience. Now, when you're going back to the whole angel adventure world, oops, most people don't have experience investing. All right. Now, having said all that, I have had a firm experience in angel and, and the public market. And I believe we've gotten close to what are the right four data points on startup investing. So this really gets to the core of your question. But I can assure you the single first best step for any investor to optimize on return on investment and return on time is if you exclude kind of talking to any startup at any stage that isn't already reflecting a consistent effort at transparency, i.e. reporting. It's your first best due diligence step before you ever look at an exec summary or a pitch deck or God forbid, let that entrepreneur try and pitch you because they're trying to manipulate your limbic brain, trying to get you excited, greed, you know, FOMO, whatever they can catalyze from an emotional standpoint and get you to write the check. First thing you do is you start from risk management. Don't let them into your limbic brain yet. Say, let me see your last three monthly updates. There's great research and also a great deal of anecdotal experience, well-documented out there. Jason Kellick, all these other folks that have touched and invested in thousands of startups will tell you this. The better deals are those that become quality investments are those run by CEOs that are voluntarily transparent because it's the right thing to do, not just because it'll lead to funding. It's corporate governance. It's the the psyche of the CEO. It's the view inside the brain of the jockey. You're betting on the jockey. In that seed stage, you're betting on the jockey. And the single best way to bet on the right jockeys when you're trying to predict the future, which is pretty hard, is to bet on jockeys that are the least bad. And those are run. Those are startups where the CEOs already knows this is part of their responsibility to communicate even before and after and during funding rounds, not just because it'll lead to funding, but because it's the right thing to do. And I can send you that research as well. It's, it's really compelling and it's unbelievably simple. Now, most people that keeps you out of your limbic brain. So, so many people in the venture and angel group, I, I've spoken to Lots and lots of investor groups about this. And they said, well, well, that didn't sound like any fun. Angel groups and, and the Pitchfest Industrial Complex, Demo Day, these are all platforms to manipulate the limbic brain to influence decision making. You're trying to create hype. You're trying to create FOMO. You're trying to create an emotional enthusiasm for to get people to, to to move on their decisions. And that's how you make a lot of mistakes. If you manage your downside, you don't have to be a genius. You don't need a unicorn to have compelling Risk-adjusted returns, compelling upside, capture that asymmetric upside return. You can absolutely do it if you invest right. But that is almost the antithesis of how people do it today. Everybody's swinging for the fence because they know how to spot a good deal because they've got a quality network and they've got access to quality deal flow. Right. That literally means we're all Reggie Jackson, <laughs> right? We can swing for the fence and hit enough home runs to get paid well. We're all, but Reggie Jackson's also has the lifetime career record for strikeouts for the American League. Most people don't realize that. They recognize him for his home run hitting, but he actually has career record for strikeouts don't try and be reggie jackson yet that fuels the male ego that the, the hell the whole venture narrative industrial complex all the media and all the hype around this stuff creates that it's just more limbic manipulation to try and swing for the fence because that's what a what sells advertising for the media but b it also fuels the largely male ego to swing for the fence yeah you know, i mean we are folks our very nature is to go settle the west chase gold in gold rushes to chase gold in nft or crypto or i mean that is our very nature right yeah yep. it really is if you study behavioral finance or just human behavior you can see you don't see a lot of women trading crypto they're risk managers men are risk takers sometimes to a fault most of the time to a fault especially when the second or third budweiser is involved right <laughs> yeah, of course so of course. This, this is my point this is when you're really getting down to the foundational best practices again i'm talking about optimization and nirvana but really what that 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 conversation is about is, is to set an expectation, directional expectation. Every getting there is, you know, it's a goal. It's an aspiration. But at least understand it's the directionally the right way to go about this. So you can look at one's own processes and say, gosh, am I still part of the gambling world? At least I know I'm gambling. And I'm willing to admit it to myself, I'm gambling here. And that's really the point I'm trying to make here. I'm not trying to admonish people for gambling. I'm a libertarian philosophically, knock yourself out, right? But I personally, and I've been working on this solution for off and on now, 21 years, is that it's too important. Entrepreneurs are too important. How we fund entrepreneurial capitalism is too important not to get right or not aspire to be better at how we do this. Because I've seen some remarkably worthy entrepreneurs with, again, I don't wanna say quality deals, but not bad deals can solve a real problem in a thoughtful way by mature people committed to transparency as a starting point, of course, really a thoughtful effort at solving a real problem. And they struggle for funding. And yet the 137th food delivery company can have an oversubscribed term sheet because they happen to be located in New York or Silicon Valley. Now that's just colossally an inefficient market. It really at its core is an inefficient market. You have more buyers than sellers, meaning more investors and startups in New York and Silicon Valley. That's why you get these stupid overfunded terms. And virtually everywhere else in the country, you have the opposite, more sellers than buyers.
1: Who does this bring more opportunity to? Does it bring more opportunity to VCs and angels in these secondary markets because they have more of a, a deal flow and uh, can kind of dictate the terms that they would like? Uh, you know, Does that work it's, out?
0: It's an inefficient market. So yeah, that's just basic market theory. Absolutely. And if you can get an asymmetric information advantage in an inefficient market, you win from a pure investment strategy. Steve Case, you know, rise of the rest is running around the country, but promoting this very fact that if you just go around and you could drop in and I call it what he's doing, Seagull Seagull Venture Investing. He flies over, drops a little money in and flies off. Right. But he's it's, he's manifesting this, this arbitrage. It's just geographic arbitrage.
1: Now, I can see where, you know, that works from the angel side. But I guess on the other side, I would question is, does the network effects of areas like you know, Silicon Valley and New York uh, have a more impact on that company growing and getting follow on rounds and subscribe, you know what I mean? Yeah. And going (laughs) to the public markets. So are
0: are they technically less risky because the operational resources they have in those communities? And I would say arguably, yes. Hard to prove, but I think that's pretty logical. The question is, how big is that? Does it offset (laughs) pricing and offset the silliness of the tool to term sheet and all that sort of stuff, right? That's that really is what you're trying to calibrate is, is this such a big difference that? Because when you look at some of the work that uh, 500 startups has done, they've done some really nice work. They've invested in a lot of companies over a long period of time, so they have one of the best data pools to start looking at stuff. And their investing, by their own admission, has largely been in the major metropolitan areas, right? So it's almost a reflection of of that point. Well, the success and failure rates of their data, their portfolio, isn't vastly different from the success rates of companies outside of Silicon Valley. So I mean, it's hard to get good data to isolate that very point you're talking about. But I don't think the the advantage is beyond the f- easy financing, which can't be overlooked, by the way. You know How much of that network effect advantage is really just a function of easier funding around so the entrepreneurs can spend less time chasing money? If you could isolate that, then I would be able to have a more informed commentary on whether those ecosystems and the network effect really do offset the operational risks to such a trade-off that it's worth investing in only those ecosystem startups. Does that make sense?
1: Yep. Yeah.
0: The ease of funding out of that network effect. Everything else is access to resources, non-financial resources, better access to those resources. Um, I think that can be argued pretty easily, that it's not worth the trade-off. If you can mobilize more money in Atlanta, you'd have, I think, a better return experience in Atlanta companies. Now, you may not get the huge-ass unicorns, but remember, that's a false pursuit anyway. If you built a portfolio of Atlanta-based companies and manage that portfolio well, risk management through all the things we're talking about, I think that portfolio would outperform a similarly architected Silicon Valley portfolio. Got it. And, really and you, do.
1: you mentioned the consistent effort in reporting monthly from the uh, startups. And that's mm-hmm. kind of where, you know, you guys are stepping in at Angels Fan, correct? With that relationship between the startup and the investor and kind of what are you guys doing specifically to help that process?
0: Yeah, I mean, this goes back to 21 years ago when I started trying to figure this out. Um, how can we bring public market behavior to the private markets, both from an investment side? But also from a startup's behavior. Because as private companies, they don't fall under the SEC requirements of you know, public reporting as public companies have to. But they should. It's a major breakdown and a major contributor to this inefficiency of capital flows. you don't have efficient flow of information, you can't have efficient flow of capital. Basic efficient market 101. So what Angel Span does and Angel Legacy before that, 21 years ago, is created the first public market-like investor relations service. So startups hire us to make sure they're communicating to the external world properly, properly by public market standards, right? I don't say my standards, public market standards. So yeah, they hire us, we do the curation, we do the, you know, there's plenty of tools out there, you would call Angel Spans competitors, that are all templates of, of IR templates and IR tools, but they're all do-it-yourself. They're all do it yourself. Well, if you think in terms of public companies, right, what if they could do it themselves on picking how they were gonna report their financials. Gap requirements, generally accepted accounting principles weren't a requirement to report as a public company. It would just be noise. Even though they reported regularly their financials, it would just be noise because it's do it yourself, right? Standardization is a key component to efficient flow of information. So what we're aspiring to do is to create the industry standard because that will benefit both startups and investors. Um, how we're able to do that is there is a gap structure equivalent for private companies. If you think of what gap accounting is for public companies, what would be the equivalent for private companies? And it's actually it's partially designed and built by Coopers and Librand, one of the old accounting firms now, Price Waterhouse PricewaterhouseCoopers, and also working with a man named Gordon Bell and, and a gallium, Heidi Mason. It's called the Bell Mason Diagnostic. And it was, again, architected, designed, architected, and back-tested over thousands of companies by Gordon Bell, Heidi Mason, Coopers, and Librand. Well, Gordon Bell's an investor in fan. Um, we have the Bell Mason Diagnostic that acts as the gap-like structure to our investor relations service. So it's not a do-it-yourself tool or service. It's a structure that is well-designed architected and back-tested called the Bell Mason Diagnostic. But we also do the curation for our clients. So we're freeing up their time, the CEO's time and their CEO's direct reports. So we're, we're curating their, their production of the monthly updates and quarterly reports. But we're also making sure they adhere to the standard, this framework. It's not do-it-yourself. It's don't tell the world what you want to tell them because that becomes, <laughs> that's noise. That's all that is, right? So all these do-it-yourself templates are just adding to noise in the system. It's just volume you're turning up by producing a lot of do-it-yourself communications. You're just raising the volume, but it's still noise. Think of information theory, signal to noise ratio. How much is signal, how much is noise? Do-it-yourself is all noise. There may be signal hidden in there, but for the receivers, the readers, it's noise because they themselves don't have confidence and aren't able to understand what part of the, that communication, that DIY platform is actual valuable information, how much of a type. You always got a, information theories you always send a, a message but is it being received that which you're trying to send and do it yourself doesn't allow for that to happen that's just basic information theory Dude. and the science, science of communication so yes we're that's the first thing we built is wall street like proper standardized investor relations for startups that's the first thing that we built at angel span so that we had signal going to the outside world structure around the bell mason diagnostic now without spending, again, I know we could, I could spend hours on this, but the um, in, by curating it against the Bell Mason, we also score it, our clients against the Bell Mason. Heidi and Gordon and Coopers and Library created a numerical scoring system to assign a numerical value to these early stage operational activities that startups all have to go through, that only show up on your income statement as a line on a salary expense to a lawyer, to a developer, to your own salary, right? Marketing and stuff. But those are necessary expenses that are building what's largely you think of in accounting terms as intangible assets, brand value, market awareness, market presence, the product itself. If you're building out technology platform, you're paying developers to build a balance sheet asset called software, right? Yet the very accounting of of development expenses under current tax law allows for startups to expense those dev costs as R and D expenses to offset your payroll tax. They really tout that as a way to help entrepreneurs offset their, their their funding challenges is by expensing development costs as our details. Well, from an accounting standpoint, that's legal and, and, and attractive, but from an investor, nothing shows up on the balance sheet of how much money you've spent on your platform, on your technology, right? So this is where you, you've got this this dislocation. Well, that's what Bell Mason Diagnostic resolves they create a scoring system for those early stage activities. So you can actually track longitudinally how well the business is doing over time. Are they hitting the right operational steps given what stage they're in? So by scoring our clients also every month against the Bell Mason, we're now creating the first Wall Street quality longitudinal research on private companies. So not only is it Wall Street quality, public market quality reporting, now we also layer on that level of quality analysis. So we have an objective view of our clients. I can tell you which of our clients are executing better. I don't get in the weeds on what our clients do. I don't wanna know what they do. That's limbic brain stuff. But we wanna be able to objectively evaluate who's doing best as measured by objective standardized metrics, not built by us. This is not our opinion. The only thing that's our opinion is the scoring itself. My team is highly trained. We have a full audit trail on the scoring. Our clients, the startups know how they're being scored. We ask them, look, at make sure you're giving us all the information. They can't see the Bell Mason diagnostic. We don't give them the details so they can gamify it. But we absolutely encourage them. We want to give you all the points you deserve and no more. So make sure you're reporting thoroughly through our service so you earn all these points properly. So you can communicate to the outside world the effectiveness of your execution against this idea that you deem to be a worthy entrepreneurial venture. That's what we're doing for our startup clients.
1: Now, with so many... Uh, services and software subscriptions thrown at all these startups, the thing that comes to my mind is, you know, how how are you getting them on board to justify the cost and their time in working with you?
0: Well, that's a long question. We've worked with, (laughs) we have page after page after page of testimonials from clients that, that it's their reaction to your very question, because the magic is the platform we built to get the information without distracting our clients from building their business. That is the very point where span is over seven years old. It's taken us a long time to build out the workflow and the platform to address those very things because that is the only thing that's mattered for the first part of Span's life is build the tool to make sure that A, not only are we not a distraction for the startup client, but we're a great value for what they pay because the earlier they are, the less money they have. So we have to find that delicate balance between ROI and absolute hard, hard costs. And part of the ROI has to be for their time and their mental bandwidth. That's a real key point to this is, is we've got you know the, the, the confidence we give our clients, our CEO clients, that they don't have to worry about this. They all are told whether they go through an accelerator or you read anything, you got to communicate, right? Yeah, they hear that all the time. The question is how and how do you do it right? Well, we've simply designed right. Right in content, right in cadence, and by curating it, we're also making sure the context is optimized for the reader. Not what the CEO wants to say, but what's optimized to communicate to your audience of potential investors, existing investors, and other stakeholders that can help you as an entrepreneur be successful. That's, those are the resources you're trying to mobilize, the resources of stakeholders broadly upon which includes your own existing investors, potential investors, and other people that can help you. Introduce you to customers, employees, to, 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 um, to other investors. So that's really what we've designed and built is the the optimization process to get the information out of the startup. We built a tech platform, we're connected to Slack. We had a mobile app for a while um, because we had a a client say, you know, I'm always away from my computer, but if I could dictate this while I'm in my car commuting." So we built a a mobile app for people that like a dictation tool, like the old lawyers and doctors used to do. Wasn't used very much. We flirted with Alexa, put an Alexa in the um, staff meeting once a week, just have the department heads report on what they're doing and have Alexa capture it. And then we have uh, electronic translation uh, and then we go curate it. Well, nobody trusts Alexa. (laughs) Nobody wanted Alexa inside their staff meetings. (laughs) So we've been working hard at making it efficient to get the information from the startups. And not just a CEO, by the way, that's the whole point. You gotta get the CEOs to let go. Let their direct reports, the head of sales and marketing, the head of product development, right? Their operations slash CFO or whoever they have for internal operations. Let them report through our platform, through the Slack channel, directly into our platform on their responsible areas. We curate it. And then the CEO just fills in the blanks at the end of the month and adds whatever he or she wants to add. And then it goes out. So when the CEO uses this properly, it's 10, 15 minutes a month to have literally public company quality investor relations as part of your communication if they use us properly and we coach them on proper. but again, entrepreneurs are an interesting bunch, right? Mm-hmm. terribly coachable. Correct. Correct. I agree there. So what, you
1: know, are you guys, I guess in the, in, in, this, is this, are you guys always a standalone service or have you guys partnered with any other services like cap table management or kind of, you know, as a package <laughs> deal or kind of what's, what's happening behind the scenes?
0: That's a great, thank you for asking that because it's ironic you use cap table. Um, there was a report put out by a group called Going VC. I don't know if you've come across them, but they're trying to train GPs of emerging managers in the venture space. And one of the fellows that contributes content to the Going VC, because people that run it's a bunch of um, volunteers. And um, there's a guy named uh, Austin Guy, who is a quant strategist with Northern Trust, big investment firm out of Chicago, highly respected. And um, he was writing about the absence of public market vigor and rigor in the venture asset class, as has I, and we've connected. Anyway, Long story short, he wrote a piece that uh, identified AngelSpan Services, as well as CapTable IO, a couple others, as key components of the optimal venture back office. Okay, I used that as a chance to reach out, reach out to Eric Reese and said, "I think we can have an interesting conversation." Well, fast forward, uh, we are partnered with CapTable IO. They had their own do-it-yourself IR solution called Disclosure, but nobody used it properly. And so when they came across to us, they realized we had designed this properly to accomplish what they knew needed to be accomplished. A standardized format. You have to have standardization if you're going to have an efficient market. So yeah, they're we're they're right now reaching out to their customers in a pilot program to introduce AngelSpan, um, and that's coming from the head of Captable IO, Jason Sweater. Uh, he's the one that's actually reaching out in an email campaign to a targeted list. It's a pilot program. Once we get behind this, then we're going to do a much more public, formal partnership launch. Uh, but yes, we are partnered with Captable IO. Um, to bundle that to bring again standardized corporate governance back office practices so you can aspire to act like a publicly traded company because that's what LTSE, the parent company, actually is. If you know what LTSE is doing, Cap Table is a division of LTSE, long term stock exchange, and they're now one of the four approved and licensed exchanges in the United States the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ, that Flash Boys, um, high frequency trading, the IEX. Brad Matsumura, Michael Lewis wrote about the Flash Boys. Um, And now LTSC, only four licensed exchanges in the United States, LTSC is one of them. Their whole aspiration is to incentivize reward and create a path for long-term investing behavior. Both publicly traded companies and private companies traded on their exchange, but you're not going to be able to list and trade on their exchange unless you're following good back office and corporate governance practices, which includes proper reporting. Got it. Like Title III of the JOBS Act, if you want to have non-accredited investors, it requires investor relations. The 33 Act, the Securities Act of 1933 was literally, the SEC was launched to enforce transparency and reporting from public companies, publicly traded companies, as an act of risk management. They learned prior to the 33 Act that formed the SEC, you know, in the teens and 20s, we had companies that were publicly traded, but there's no standardized accounting practices. There's no standardized reporting requirements. And that's what allowed for all the hype and fraud and insider trading and crap that led to the the implosion in 29. And that's why the, the SEC was formed to begin with. So transparency as an act of risk management is well recognized. What's lacking in the private markets is A, the ability to have a standard that people adhere to. Well, that's not only our aspiration. Gordon Bell, um, as a, he's an investor, and he said th- that is what investors will do. They'll, they'll say, why aren't you using AngelSpan? Why aren't you willing to adhere to the industry standard for reporting? That's a risk management question. It's a wonderful due diligence question. A, that eases the, the risk management practices of the investor by just that singular metric. Why aren't you ad- adhering to the accepted standards. That's a massive improvement in the investment process if investors understood it. If started, so that's literally our goal. And our you know uh, our goal is to set the standard, but becoming an industry standard takes time. It takes partnerships like LTS, yeah. you know, that sort of stuff. So, well,
1: let's hit on our last topic for today, and that is you know, and you mentioned R and D tax credits, and that also kind of coincides with the QSBS tax breaks. That yeah. is the added benefit of being an angel investor or investing in these tech startups. So you know, at the high level, what is QSBS?
0: Yeah, thank you. QSBS stands for Qualified Small Business Stock, QSBS. Now, that is a definition that the government originally incentivized to mobilize investors into this new asset class called venture capital. They passed QSBS, the first law in 1958. So it's been around a long time. And the QSBS under section 1244, so QSBS 1244 is a shortened, well, you can Google, anybody of yours can Google it or what have you. And again, I've got lots of materials on this if you wanna provide a resource library. Um, QSBS says, look, if you invest in startup, you're a taxable investor and you're willing to be an early investor in startups and the startups you're investing in, the term sheet itself, that actual term sheet is a QSBS. It actually is a definition of the term sheet that the investor is investing in. But that term sheet has to come from a C-Corp, LLCs, don't qualify. That company itself has to be in the business of making and selling something. So service businesses don't qualify. Restaurants, retail, they also, the law designates financial services, real estate services, service businesses don't qualify. So what the company is doing is they have to be in the business of making and selling something. Can't just be an intermediary. And term sheet itself that the investor is investing in is an equity instrument, meaning a common or preferred stock, which preferred is obviously the appropriate term sheet for any outside investor to invest in. You never invest in common stock, not in private companies. So, and when you invest, you're part of the first million dollars. So, that startup hasn't raised more than a million dollars of outside money. Then, that term sheet is QSBS section 1244 qualified. So, C Corp, business of making and selling something, preferred stock, and it's part of the first million dollars. Those are the four criteria. What happens is, is that if that startup fails, which happens, and you were one of these earliest investors, part of that first million dollars, then you can actually write off your investment and get your taxable income. Now, that's a de risking step because the Marginal tax bracket between capital gains rates and marginal income tax rates, is pretty substantial, 20 to 25% delta, okay? Because the tax implications of when you take a capital loss, you then write, if you have capital gains, you offset your capital gains, which are only taxed at 15%. And the rest you then carry forward and write off against your taxable income as an itemized deduction, $3,000 a year, whatever capital losses uh, you take that aren't offset by capital gains. In a 1244 write off, it's actually, and this is tax nerd detail, so forgive me, but it's important for your listeners that understand the tax law. It's an, what's called an above the line deduction, above the adjusted gross income line. Now, for accountants and, and a tax nerds like me, that's really sexy because if you think in terms of charitable contributions, you know, when you do your own taxes or have somebody do your taxes, they're asking you how much you're going to write off of working from home last year, what percent of your house is, is your home office. Those are all itemized deductions to lower your taxable income after you've calculated your adjusted gross income. A 1244 deduction is above the line, which means it's a better write-off than if that investor gave the same money to a nonprofit, even if the startup fails. It's a better financial transaction than a charitable contribution if the startup fails. Now, wealthy people give a lot of money away each year. Last year was over $400 billion. No kidding. And they know they're losing it all. Now, what if you could present a path to invest in entrepreneurial ventures, and it's a better financial transaction than if you gave money to charity under a worst-case scenario? And under a best case scenario, there's a positive outcome, an exit. And that's where the other QSBS tax law kicks in. That's called Section 1202. That was passed in 93 and has been modernized in multiple steps since 93. Um, and that says if I invest in a QSBS term sheet, all the same definition, that's why I spent so much time on it. But the startup has a positive exit. And by the way, this applies to investments that I make throughout the funding rounds. The first transaction that might be 1244 qualified, meaning that earliest $1 million. But if I invest in a startup in the second or third round, well past that $1 million dollar threshold, that's okay. As long as from the time I invested to the time there's an exit, it took five years. From the time of my investment, whichever round I invested in, to the time there's a positive exit, it took five years. C-Corp, business of making and selling something, non-service business, right? And, and a preferred term sheet. Then I, as a taxable investor, pay zero taxes on the first $10 million of profits per deal. And that's per shareholder. So there's a company that has a $100 million exit and they're QSBS and they manage this tax implication properly. Nobody pays any taxes on the gains, including the founder shares, by the way. 1244 or 1202 applies to founder shares, which is, to me, it's a crime that most accelerators don't even coach the entrepreneurs on this stuff because most of them don't know about them them.
1: Why do you think there's no standardization around this process?
0: That's a great question. You know, I used to lecture CPAs 20 some years ago on these tax laws back in California when I was running the family office and the multifamily office and doing my angel investing. And I discovered them and I became an expert in the California CPA Society so they could get continued education credits. to hear me lecture them on tax laws? And to me, the, it's really a profound question because I have spent 20 some years trying to draw attention to these underutilized tax laws. And I have to take some responsibility for not being an optimal mouthpiece. You know, I'm, as you can probably tell, I'm, I'm somewhat professorial and somewhat dogmatic and somewhat opinionated. And that isn't oftentimes the best way to communicate new information. So I'll take some ownership of that. However, um, I talked to the Kaufman Foundation, the Angel Capital Association, um, all these different lobbying organizations about these tax laws. And what I have found is, and I've talked to lots of angel groups and VCs themselves and lawyers and accountants. And it comes down to three, three reasons is the best way I could summarize it. And I'm talking about thousands of companies, people I've talked about this. And some of them I've told two and three times. And then when they finally get an exit, they come back to me and says, what are those tax laws again? Seriously, I've had that happen here in, in Austin, but uh, with, with some of the CTAN members, the Central Texas Angel member. It's amazing. Anyway, um, it comes down to sort of um, the people I've spoken to about the tax laws, most people's brains shut down when somebody says tax cut. Seriously, their brains shut down. They don't intake new information. Even though they see my lips moving, they're actually not accepting that new information because people have an inherent fear of Taxes, right? There's an underlying fear. So, oh, I pay my accountant to know about that. So, even though I'm talking to them, their eyes are blinking, they're not registering anything because of this innate shutting, mental shutting down of the tax code. So, I, and that's why I pay an accountant because I don't want to think about the tax code. Um, That's about two thirds of the people. About 25% of the people have what I call career risk CPAs that do the tax returns for wealthy people. If I educate them on the QSBS laws and they then go and look at their client situations and realize they screwed up 10 years of Tax returns because their wealthiest clients were active angel investors. They've got career risk. They don't want this information to become wildly public.
1: But do you think it should be more uh, it should be more the responsibility of the actual startup to provide that type of letter or guidance to the LPs? because that or, or is or
0: hire an expert in it and have that expert do your investor relations. It's exactly right. I always tell all of our clients, look at you don't have to be an expert in this. I am. That's part of the value of our service. Aside from producing your monthly updates and quarterly reports, we can arm you with a great deal of other expertise as your investor relations. Just like having a quality CFO or a quality outsourced attorney, we're a quality investor relations service. So, yeah, that's why. Entrepreneurs don't need to become experts in this. We don't want our clients to be experts. They've got an expert on their team. But the awareness of it absolutely should be out there. And finally, I'm seeing KPMG and some of the big accounting firms start putting QSBS in their newsletters. But more times than not, they're only talking about 1202, shielding the profits. For me, it's what's far more relevant is 1244, because that affects a lot more startups and a lot more investors at the riskiest stage. Again, we're trying to mobilize more money for more startups. And that tax code itself is a major opportunity, especially when you think in terms of the wealthiest families out there that are doing impact investing. They're caring about who they invest in. This is magic because they can care about the profile of the startups, do impact investing. and know that it's a smart investment. They're not only the dumb money in the room, they're the smartest money in the room because they're actually managing the after-tax risk and returns properly and still caring about how they make money. So they actually have a brain and a heart in how they're investing in startups. And that to me is, that's really sort of the, because that's the world I came from. I manage money for wealthy people. I was a philanthropy consultant for 20 years. Um, I've seen the real inspiration that can come from well-intended wealthy people wanting to do legitimate good with their excess resources. Heartfelt, legit. And I helped them do it. And that was really the impetus of why I started Angel Legacy 21 years ago was to, to treat that pile of well-intended investors. I, you know, we'll call them angel investors, but true angel investors, true benevolent, deep-pocketed folks, to treat them better to have them be willing to write more checks because they're being treated better, both qualitatively and quantitatively. Optimizing on these tax laws, managing risk properly, helping them invest more and more better in wherever they would choose to write those well-intended checks. Because the the definition of impact is solely in the eyes of the investor. Of course. It It absolutely is, right? And I'm not going to judge what you deem impact. I just want to help you do it well. That's all and more of it. Because that's the emotion, that's the motivation we need to foster, is people's willingness to feel great about writing more checks in this entrepreneurial asset class. And the only way they're gonna, we're gonna be able to mobilize the money that's out there, because there is piles of it out there, is a better way to do it on a risk-adjusted basis. A better way to do it, and better is, is absolutely quantifiable in strategy, tactics, tax optimization, et cetera, et cetera. Better is absolutely both a qualitative judgment, but it's identifiable. I can show you what better looks like in the venture strategy. I can absolutely show you what better looks like. That's like putting a definition to quality, what, what's beautiful. <laughs> I can show you a beautiful venture strategy and that's all supported by research, re- supported by all these best, pra- all this body of knowledge that I've been accumulating for over 21 years because I've been trying to bring innovation for over 21 years to this venture. Path to funding. And we finally done it. And it's a relationship with uh, LTSE just got launched in July. So your question is very timely.
1: That's good. It's good. We on the spot know, It only would make sense to have those type of partnerships. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And they're a quality one because I've been following them since when they launched because they've been talking about wanting to bring public market disciplines to the private markets. And then they went about doing that. They built IO, their 409A evaluation. They even built their disclosure division, this templated library of, of investor relations tools. And it failed miserably. And that's why they were so quick to respond to what we did. And they hired Jason Brouswater from NASDAQ's Investor Relations Department. That's why he understood so quickly what we're doing and the design of it and the importance of standardization. Do it yourself. A, hey, is not sufficient. It's just making the ability to turn up the volume of noise easier for entrepreneurs by making it easy for them to push something out there that really doesn't serve the investor community. It just confirms you're still alive. But that's just noise. It's not signal. And that's why they got it. And so, yeah, they're, we're both on a path to... Um, with the same aspirations to bring better practices to the private markets, better qualitative and quantitative. And that's why I said better, I can show you what better looks like. It's not hard because we're just borrowing from the public markets. that are just largely not been adopted by the historical participants in the private market. It's all about demo day. It's all about hot deals. It's all about you know, <laughs> the optics of who else is in the deal and who else is in the room at demo day. And who else is excited? That's just patently nonsense from a disciplined investment process.
1: It would definitely need more transparency and data around the the industry to, you know, bring in more LPs and angel investors uh, and, and also to retain them long term. Right. Put them in the right deals because, you know, if they lose money, they won't want to come back. So I think it's really important. Uh, you know, I guess to come to a final close here, you know, our last question we always ask everybody on the episode is what is the biggest thing you have implemented in your life that has increased your net worth?
0: My personal net worth? Yeah, like what is the biggest thing that you've implemented? Well, that's an interesting question because I I learned early on in life, money didn't motivate me. So I never thought about implementing it to enhance my net worth. That wasn't ever an end game for me. It was always a result. Um, I I took over this investment firm and that increased my net worth substantially by operating a business. Probably launching AngelSpan. It's already worth more on paper than my prior investment firm. We were pretty top-notch investment firm. But the value of a service business versus a scalable business is two different things so i would say that the arguably it's was launching angel spam i guess
1: to the context of your beginning of the con- uh, uh, conversation there is that the biggest thing that might have made the most impact was actually not having any focus on making money per se out of what you're doing correct i mean that's kind of the
0: biggest impact there yeah for me understanding you know that's that's an interesting question and and it's i mean i've studied this maybe the 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 single artist is I've studied the psychology of wealth since college. I came across an article that was, I think it was in Forbes. I was reading maybe the Wall Street Journal in college about why wealth stays in European families longer than American families through multiple generations. Why is that? And that led me down the path of studying the psychology of wealth. And then that's what leads to all this optimization we're talking about. Um, And so if you really go down to the root, it was probably reading that article because understanding the psychology of money has been the single most important thing that's ever happened to me. And the interest in studying it since college, and I still do do to this day. That's why I talk about behavioral finance and Danny Kahneman and Annie Duke. And my these are the forerunners in really bringing psychology. It's finally getting recognized into this world of now we call behavioral finance. Um, but this is stuff I've cared about for God, it's almost forty years now. Shit, Jesus Christ, it's almost forty years.
1: Ah. Well, I can see how the psychology of money can affect people because it seems like uh, you know, obviously, with everything that goes on in life, it's just what's put at front and center as a purpose every day and kind of driving, you know, people to do their certain decisions, whether, why. They're, whether they're good or bad, is typically always around the, impact, why. Uh, the yeah. money.
0: It's what's your why. It really goes back to why. And it, having the, the ability to manage old money, one of our clients in this, the multifamily office, sort of the anchor tenant, if you will, client and family was um, three generations of the DuPont family. The oldest, the, the patriarch of that client relationship, his grandfather was president of DuPont, a DuPont. And um, that's the oldest money in the United States. Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson recruited the DuPont family from France after the French Revolution to bring their chemist, their knowledge of chemistry, and specifically gunpowder, to this new country called the United States. And they moved here in 1801. And I've had the luxury of studying the, the DuPont family's archives and the history of that family. And so it was a wonderful lesson. Again, that was a French family, European money coming to the United States. And it's still in the family through over 200 years. So it's still applying those lessons. And, and it was fascinating to understand um, both the Forbes article, but then find myself in a position to A, learn about myself and not being motivated by money. And then C, to um, to have such an intimate relationship with so much information that was right there with that client, the DuPont families. And um, it was, like I said, that's what served, served me so well, because it's it's allowed me to understand what are the psychological journeys you have to both want to pursue the sort of impact and and higher purpose, if you will, if you think in terms of Maslowian motivations and the Maslow's hierarchy of needs and motivations, but also what to guard against. What I I call is that limbic manipulation where the seven deadly sins can creep in and and influence bad decisions, right? Whether they're financial decisions or life decisions, that's all entered uh, through our limbic brain to influence the decision making. And and, um, that's something I've, like I said, been really cognizant about for a long time that was probably the most impactful going back to that first Forbes article.
1: Well, that's good. Hopefully uh, hopefully our listeners are, will take that into consideration and you know, uh, you know, definitely put that to work in their life. I appreciate uh, sharing that.
0: It's just understanding what's your own why. It's okay to gamble. Just know and label it properly. Just don't fool yourself or the people around you. That's, that's the silliness. You know, I mean, look, I can, I can see why you can make a ton of money off this stuff. You can make a ton of money gambling if you're disciplined enough, right? And that's my point. Understand what you're doing, and then deploy disciplines. Don't just allow yourself to remain in this dopamine high that comes from your limbic brain getting manipulated and fueled. Say, "Look, at, I'm going to make money on NFTs. Cool. I'm going to trade crypto. I'm going to make money at this stuff." These are all instruments to make money, but don't think you're investing. Don't <laughs> we'll call it as such. That's the all right. problem. Well,
1: let's leave off there. And uh, I appreciate you know coming on the show today. Uh, you know, if any listeners would like to get a hold of you or learn more about AngelSpan, what should they do?
0: Well, my email is joe at angelspan.com or they can just hit the website angelspan.com and request more information or whatever else. And again, as you can probably tell, I've got a library of research if anybody wants to do their homework. Yes, I'm fairly opinionated on it. I've been studying it a long time and studying the the marketplace a long time and I'm happy to share. I'm a terrible sales guy. So if you're a startup, you'll either get what we're doing or not. You'd be silly not to use angelspan because I could show you the research as to why and whatever discomfort you feel by being transparent. Understand that, that discomfort is actually offset by the credibility you are now communicating to the outside world. So however deep you feel uncomfortable, it actually has an instant trade off Um, serial entrepreneur. They're going to love us because they go, I mean, we sign up serial entrepreneurs constantly. They know how important this is. They know how difficult it is to get right by outsourcing as I say. So yes, please. Oh, by the way, what's it cost? And we're not that expensive either. So
1: I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for coming on today.
0: Thank you for having me, Joe. I appreciate it. We got Joe squared here. (laughs) thank you alrighty thank you for your time